0: The day the devil dies, and I don't know about you, but I'm anxious for that day. Couldn't come soon enough as far as I'm concerned, but uh, we're going to study and see what Scripture has to tell us about this day. When will the devil actually get his? Because if you've noticed, this whole big problem, this whole sin issue, this what we call the great controversy has been waging for thousands of years now, and many, many people have died, but the devil just keeps going. When is he going to get what's due him? And last night we looked at the second coming, not so much the signs that uh, tell us when it is near, but the actual manner of his coming, what's going to happen and the preparation that's required. And many people would think, aha, I know then that when Jesus comes again, then the devil will be destroyed. Well, that's the burden of our study today, the day the devil dies. But before we begin any study of God's word, what do we need to do first? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us this precious time that we can be together. You've carved out of the week this time to commune with you, to fellowship together, and to study your word and to do your will. And now, Lord, as we turn our attention to that word that you've given us, help us to understand it. And more than an intellectual understanding, help us to see Jesus in this book of Revelation. Help us to understand who he is and how he operates, and through that be drawn closer to him every day. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, turn to the Gospel of Luke. And I know we're looking at the keys of Revelation, and we're about to dive into the book of Revelation. But before we do, I want to start with something from the book of Luke, from the Gospel of Luke, the third book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, then Luke, chapter 10... And we're going to be focusing on verse 18. But to give you a little context, let me tell you what's happening. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus has sent out 70 of his followers to do work like his work. And you can tell at the beginning of Luke chapter 10, we'll start there with verse 1. It says, After these things the Lord appointed 70 others also, And he sent them out two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. And so he sends these ministers, if you will, out to where he's about to go to kind of prepare the soil to get people ready for Jesus coming. And he gives them the ability to heal diseases and to cast out demons. And they return later in the same chapter, at least it records them returning. And we find that in verse 17. What do they come back with? What is their report to Jesus? Then the 70 returned with what? Joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Now, I don't know if that made Jesus sad, but it sounds almost like they were surprised. (laughs) It's like, you'll never believe it. Did you know that you're even stronger than the demons? And he was kind of like, well, yes, that's why I sent you out, right? To prepare the way, to get things ready. And look what Jesus responds to this declaration of joy. They say, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And then we read verse 18. And he said to them, I saw, what? Satan fall, how? Like lightning from where? Heaven. They come back, Lord, even the demons are subject to your name. You'll never believe it. You'll never guess. Did you know? And he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, we've studied the fall of Satan before, and we're going to look at it again. He did indeed fall from heaven, but it's interesting that he mentions he fell like lightning. Now, oftentimes, when we talk about lightning and we use it as a metaphor or a simile, like lightning... We're talking about speed, like something quick happening rapidly. Lightning, right? But I don't believe that that's what Jesus meant here. If for no other reason than the logical assumption here, this is 4,000 years after he was cast out of heaven, and he's still doing his business. In fact, he's still going around and having demons into people, and they're having to be cast out. There's still this war going on. So what does he mean like lightning from heaven. Well, we don't have to guess too much because the same Jesus talked about another being coming from heaven like lightning. Let's go to the book of Matthew, just a couple books back. Matthew chapter 24 and verse 27. Notice what Jesus says, this time not about Satan, but about himself and his own return from heaven to the earth notice what it says in Matthew chapter 24 verse 27 for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west so also will the coming of the son of man be now when jesus employs that metaphor or that simile like lightning is he saying that the lord is going to come back that fast like instantaneously no, no, no. He's saying it's going to come from the east and shine to the west. It's going to flash across the whole horizon. That means that every eye will see him, right? He's talking about visibility. And if you have your study guide out, that's our first fill in the blank. Lightning, as Jesus uses it for his own return and also from the fall of Satan from heaven, is not a metaphor for speed, okay, or rapidness. It's quickness. He's not talking about that. Lightning isn't used here to talk about speed, but instead he's talking about visibility, being able to see what's going on. This is an important point, and Jesus talks about Satan falling like lightning from heaven. Going back to the Old Testament book of Ezekiel, this is exactly what we studied. In the very first week of our series, Ezekiel chapter 28, we're going to be looking at verses 17 and onward where the prophet talks about this fall of Satan from heaven. And notice it isn't about quickness, but it's about visibility. Ezekiel chapter 28, look at verse 17, speaking of Lucifer who became Satan when he was cast out. Your heart was lifted up because of your what? Beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I laid you before kings. Why did he do this? That they might, what's that word? Gaze. What does it mean to gaze at something? to look at something, to see it, to stare at it, right? That they might gaze at you. Now, of course, we've already talked about this. God doesn't just see to you. God sees through you, amen? So God saw what was in Lucifer's heart all along. He saw the rebellion start up, and he cast him out of heaven. But instead of blotting him out, he merely removes him because other people needed to see what God had seen all along, yes? So what the scripture tells us the reason he was cast out instead of being out of, blotted out of existence is that the, those who knew him, they might gaze at you. In fact, go down to verse 19. Um, if we just keep reading verse 18, we'll just go right through. You defiled your sanctuaries by the multitude of your iniquities, by the iniquity of your trading. Therefore, I brought fire from your midst It devoured you. I turned you to ashes upon the earth. Notice this now. In the sight of all who saw you. All who knew you among the peoples are astonished at you. You have become a horror and shall be no more forever. Notice that there's process language here. He's originally cast out so that everyone can have a chance to see him. And then they realize, you are a horrible, terrible thing, exactly as Christ said, and someday you shall be no more. But the casting out of Satan was not from one moment from the height of glory to the depth of the grave instantaneously. It was a process so that all could see for themselves what God had seen all along. Is this making sense so far? So now we turn to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12 Outlines for us the four stages of the casting out of the devil. The destruction of Satan occurs in four distinct steps. Revelation chapter 12, and we're going to begin with verse 7. Verses 7 through 9 records the initial casting out of Satan from the courts of heaven that we just read about there in Ezekiel chapter 28. You can also find it in Isaiah chapter 14, when he was cast out of heaven. Again, look at verse 7 of Revelation chapter 12. And war broke out where? In heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a what? Place found for them where? In heaven any longer. So they were removed from their place in heaven. Continues on, verse 9. So the great dragon was what? Cast out. That serpent of old called whom? The devil and Satan. Who deceives the whole world, he was cast where? To the earth. And his angels were cast out with him. So he, along with those who followed him, were removed from their place in heaven and cast to the earth. This was the initial step. But we've already answered why he was cast out instead of being eliminated from existence. And again, the reason was that those who had seen him could not see the inner workings of his heart and mind. They did not understand all that was involved with his rebellion. And they needed an opportunity to see for themselves what God had seen All along. So he was cast out of heaven. But now we go to verse 10 to find the second stage of Satan's casting out. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been what? Cast down. Now, if you remember, as Jesus saw the cross of Calvary approaching on the horizon, he knew that his time was coming close. He declared, now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And as we studied this before, all of this is just a review, but we studied that at the cross of Calvary, these those unfallen beings, the angel hosts in heaven, Saw in the actions and behavior of Satan what God had seen in his character all along, that he truly was a liar and a murderer from the very beginning. Not only did they see the character of Satan revealed for who he really was, they also saw the character of God revealed, that he would give anything for any one of his creatures, including the life of God himself, were it possible. And in that time, they had the Second casting out, not just from the courts of heaven now, but also from the sympathies of heavenly beings, he has been removed. And the question might be asked okay, now I understand why he wasn't destroyed when he was initially cast out. But then the question is if all the heavenly intelligences who knew him, the angel hosts, now recognized the rebellion for what it was, why not kill him at the cross of Calvary too? Well, the answer to that is very simple because it's not called the plan of destruction. It's called the plan of redemption or the plan of salvation. Christ didn't just come to end Satan, but he also came to save sinners. So now the question is, now that Christ has died for fallen man, will fallen man actually take him up on his offer of pardon and power? They must choose whom they will serve. They need to see for themselves which brings us to the third step. Still in Revelation chapter 12. Now look at verse 11. And they overcame him. How? By the blood of the Lamb. And notice who the they is. If you skip back in verse 10, it tells us who the they is. It says, Who accused them, our brethren, For the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they, that is the brethren of the angels in heaven, those here on earth, overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Just like Christ did not love his life to the death, he was willing to give it all in obedience and faithfulness to God and his plan. Now there are people who overcome Satan the same way that Christ did and they do not love their lives to the death. They become like Jesus. And thus Christ returns for a people who have chosen to take him up on his offer of pardon and power to become like Christ. And Jesus returns for the second time. And you might think, yes, that's when it happens. God has seen the rebellion of Satan and kicked him out of heaven. The heavenly intelligences, the unfallen beings, have kicked him out of their sympathies as well. And now, even the redeemed, those who are bought back by the blood of Jesus, have recognized Satan for who he is, and they no longer have sympathy for the, for the devil in their hearts. The Lord has decided, no, they, they have decided for the Lord, I should say, and all things are decided. Him who is righteous, let him be righteous still. Him who is wicked, let him be wicked still. Jesus comes, and that's the end of the ballgame. Almost. Look at verse 12. Therefore it says, Rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath, because he knows he has a what? Short time. He still has some time. (laughs) why what in the world can be accomplished more by allowing satan to live any moment longer you know the second coming of jesus is very graphically described in revelation chapter 19 if you would turn there please revelation chapter 19 we'll start with verse 11 The description of the second coming of Christ, and of course, we studied last night, he's not coming just as a humble, sacrificial servant, he's coming now as king of kings and lord of lords, and his reward is with him to give to each one according to what his works have been, right? Look at verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness, notice the two things he does, and in what order? He judges and makes war. Notice he judges first, and then he comes to execute judgment. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written on him that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations." And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of God Almighty. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, Come and gather together for for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of all those who sit on them, and of the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These, were t- these two were cast alive into the lake of fire, burning with brimstone. It goes on to say, notice what happens now. And the rest were what? Killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the throne, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. A very graphic portrayal of the second coming of Jesus. He's not coming out as, a, as the lamb that was slain. Now he's coming as the conquering king to execute justice, and those who are not gathered with him as his harvest into his barn, if you call Matthew 13, are now bundled together for the burn, and the rest are killed with his coming. And you would think, aha, well, this is a time when Satan dies too. All the wicked, including the leader of the wicked, surely meet their end now. But let's just keep reading. Look at chapter 20 and verse 1 now. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon... And notice the same language we saw in Revelation 12 the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. What does it mean to bind someone? To tie them down, to restrict them, to imprison them, to confine them. He's bound down. But he's not killed, he's stuck, but he's not ended. For how long? A thousand years. What in the world? In fact, it gets even weirder. Watch this now. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up. Now, I do like that part. <laughs> and set a seal on him. You know, you're you reminded of Daniel in the lion's den, you know, with the, the rock rolled over and the seal so that no one can break it, being set apart, being in this place cordoned off for some purpose, so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. Now, let's use a little bit of common sense right here. Why can he not deceive the nations during this thousand years? (laughs) They're all dead, right? Everyone has just been wiped out by the second coming of Christ. The wicked have joined the other wicked in their graves. The righteous have been taken to heaven with God. So... The earth is without form and void once again. It's empty. It's desolate. It's, it's, it's ravaged. And here he is stuck by this chain of circumstance with no one to tempt, no one to deceive for a thousand years. But then watch what it says. But after these things, he, what's that next word? Must be what? Released. For how long? For a little while. Do you see the picture here? He's been cast out of heaven, cast out of heaven, and finally The determination has been made, those who are righteous are righteous, those who are wicked are wicked. God comes to save the redeemed, to destroy the wicked, and the very last one who should take the brunt of all the punishment is not killed at the second coming. He's simply bound down to this empty earth for a thousand years, but then it says, and at the end of the thousand years, he must be released for a little while. Will this guy ever be destroyed? Well, yes, but not for another thousand years. What is the purpose of this thousand year chunk of time, this millennium after Jesus returns? And why would Satan be alive for it? And by the way, do you notice the implication is he won't be able to deceive the nations anymore till the thousand years were over? What apparently will happen at the end of the thousand years? There'll be people to deceive again. There's going to be a resurrection, not of the righteous, but of the wicked. What on earth purpose does this serve? Well, let's turn over in our study guide and put together what we've seen so far with our little fill-in-the-blanks here. The lone survivor, and I should also say, you know, along with his angel hosts, I assume he was cast out with them, and we're going to see that in a minute here, but that they're included in this as well. But the lone survivor among the wicked at the return of Jesus is whom? Satan. The one he would think deserves it the most is actually preserved for a while. The lone survivor among the wicked at the return of Jesus is Satan. Now, instead of being destroyed... Satan is bound for how long? 1,000 years. Instead of being destroyed, he's simply bound for 1,000 years. We've already covered this, but of course Satan can deceive the nations no more because at this point, they're all what? Dead. We just read that very graphically in Revelation 19. When the Lord comes, everyone is wiped out. All the wicked. Except for Satan. Now, our final one here. After this set amount of time, apparently Satan must be what? Released for a little while. This is all the exact language of Scripture. Must be released for a little while. What in the world is this thousand-year period of time established for? Why would God have his plan include this time period? Well, the good thing is it doesn't just leave us there at verse 3. It continues on in Revelation chapter 20. So let's go back to the Scripture now and see what the Scripture itself says about this time period. Revelation chapter 20, now we're going to verse 4 as we continue studying the day the devil dies. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. So he's seen Satan and the earth in this condition being desolate, wiped out, and he's bound. Then his attention is drawn to thrones, and this is going to be in heaven. We'll see this very clearly. Multiple thrones, not just a throne, but thrones. And it says judgment was committed to them. Well, who's them? Well, let's just keep reading. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God. Who had not worshiped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. This is the righteous, correct? Those who remained faithful to God, loyal to him, and have not followed the beast. And they lived and reigned with Christ for how long? A thousand years. So you get the picture, while Satan is bound to this desolate earth for a thousand years, at the same time, the righteous are with Christ going through what the Bible calls a work of judgment. They're sitting on thrones. A work of judgment is entrusted to them. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, think about this logically is the judgment that we're talking about here to determine who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost? Give me a logical reason why that is not the judgment that's happening now. It's already been doled out, right? When Jesus says, behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to each one according to his works. So when Jesus returns the determination for who's going to be saved or who's lost has already been made. We've already studied this from Bible prophecy. There's a work of judgment going on right now preceding his second coming. When the Lord determines who's going to make up his kingdom, that rock is being carved out even now, that kingdom of God is being established, who's going to be a part of his kingdom and who will not. And when Christ returns, he simply doles out or executes that judgment. So clearly the wicked are bundled together together in bundles for the fire, right? And the righteous are received into his barn. So that judgment has already occurred. So there is no way that the saints now are judging who should be saved and who should be lost. That is only done by God through his man Jesus Christ and it's being done right now before his second coming. None of us will determine who's going to be saved or who's going to be lost. Amen. So if it is not that judgment, then what is it? We're doing a little deductive reasoning. It's not that, so what are we left with? What's going on here? Now you notice in, back in our study guide here, although a certain judgment has already taken place, and we could study this out from Daniel 7. You recall Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, then divided Rome with the little horn, and then there's that courtroom scene in heaven, and then Jesus comes. That has already occurred. We saw it in Daniel chapter 8 as the cleansing of the sanctuary that begins at 2,300 days, right, in 1844, before Christ returns. So that work of judgment has already been completed when Jesus comes again. Now, we continue in our study guide, now a work of judgment is entrusted to the redeemed who were victorious against the beast, even at the cost of their lives. These who have been fully dedicated to Jesus Christ, come what may, even to the point of losing their lives. Now, is this the only place in the Bible where it talks about the saints being entrusted with a work of judgment? No. The Apostle Paul talks about this. We're going to see the Apostle Peter talks about it. We're going to see the Jude talks about it. It's fascinating. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And we'll just start with verse 1. The Apostle Paul apparently was frustrated with the church members in Corinth, at least in this particular Because, to give you a little background, apparently they were having disputes and battles amongst themselves, and instead of resolving it in a Christ-like way, they would just go straight to court. They would go to the public prosecutor, or the magistrate of that time, the secular world, to help them decide their cases. And Paul's like, what are you doing? Why would you be doing that? In fact, this is what he says. Look at chapter 6 and verse 1 of 1 Corinthians. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? (laughs) And then he makes this case. Why is he so emphatic about this? Look at verse 2. Do you not know? And again, he writes that as though this is common sense. This is Christianity 101. Do you not know that the saints will what? Judge the world. Now think about this. He understands the saints will judge the world. You're going to be entrusted with the work of judgment someday, and you can't even get matters of daily life right now? <laughs> that doesn't bode well for the judgment then, if you can't even practice now. Again, we continue. Verse 2, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? On this point, I think it's important to say, I think we've heard a great deal in our modern society that we should not be judgmental. And we shouldn't be judgmental. We should not be prejudging people. We should not be assigning them. We certainly have no right saying who's going to heaven or who's going to hell, amen? Having said that, does the Lord expect us to be judicious in our thinking? Absolutely. To be discerning, to be able to say, oh, this is a good thing, that's a bad thing. This is right, this is wrong. We shouldn't say, well, I can't judge. I'll just let whatever happen. No, 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 no. The apostle says, no, 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 you're going to be responsible to judge the world. So you should start practicing even now. Have good judgment. Be judicious in your thinking. Be discerning. Do you not know, he says, that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? And then he ups the ante. Look at verse 3. Do you not know that we shall judge whom? Angels. How much more, then, things that pertain to this life? The Apostle Paul writes with a very certain expectation that someday a work of judgment will be entrusted to the redeemed. He works on that. He he writes from that perspective, and he admonishes the Corinthian believers on that point. Let's go to see Peter's thoughts on this coming judgment. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. Going back to the right towards the book of Revelation. 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4. He's writing a long sentence here, but we'll just pick up verse 4 of it where he says, where he speaks of how God did not spare whom? The angels who sinned, but what did he do with them? Cast them down to hell. By the way, let's pause right there. We're going to have a message on hell you don't want to miss coming up this week. But cast them down to hell and deliver them into what? Chains of darkness to be reserved for what? Judgment. So said they were cast out, but they weren't destroyed, but they're being reserved for a particular day of judgment that is to come. And it's interesting that the language used there, binding them you know, in chains, reserving them in chains, waiting for this day of judgment. The angels. Let's go right before the tiny little sliver of a book, right before the book of Revelation, the book of Jude. The book of Jude is so small, it doesn't even have chapters. It just has verses. And we read in Jude 6 the same thing that Peter has said, the same thing that Paul has said, that there is a coming day of judgment for even the angels. Watch this now. And the angels, who did not keep their proper domain... Remember, he's talking about those fallen who were cast out with Satan at the very beginning. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode. What's an abode? Your home, your place where you live, right? They had a place where they were built for, but they rebelled against it, and they were cast out. He has, what's that next word? Reserved in everlasting chains under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Apparently there's a day when even the fallen angels will be judged. All the world, according to Paul, will be judged. And Paul said it will be judged by whom? By the saints. Revelation chapter 20 just simply depicts what Paul and Peter and Jude had been talking about all along. This great day of judgment when the world will be judged by the saints, even the angels will be included in that. Think about this. Matthew chapter 8. By the way, it's not only the righteous who understand this. Do you think that Satan is aware that there's a coming day of judgment? Absolutely. Remember in Revelation chapter 12, he knows that he has but a short time. Right? Matthew chapter 8, fascinating encounter. Jesus has, every time Jesus meets a person, it's something fascinating. Okay. But here he meets two demon-possessed people, And instead of the people speaking to him, the demons themselves speak to Jesus. Watch this. Matthew chapter 8, starting with verse 28. Watch what happens now. Matthew chapter 8, starting with verse 28. When he had come to the other side, to the country of the Gergensees, then there met him two demon-possessed men coming out of the tombs, exceedingly fierce so that no one could pass that way. Apparently, these two demon-possessed men kind of made this graveyard their place, and they were vicious and fierce, and nobody wanted to go there. There was just an awful scene, right? But Christ isn't afraid of anything. Stormy weather doesn't care. He walks over it. Demon-possessed men by a grave, whatever. We're going to keep going. And Jesus walks right up to them, and notice what they respond to him with. Verse 29, And suddenly they cried out, saying, What have we to do with you, Jesus, you Son of God? Now pause right there. Jesus couldn't give it own, get his own people to acknowledge that he was the Son of God. Did the demons have any doubt? No. They say, "You are the Son of God." And what are you doing here? Right. That's why James could say, "Even the demons believe," right? But they're not believing in faith. They know that certain they believe and tremble, according to Scripture. Right. Matthew chapter eight again. And suddenly, verse 29, they cried out saying, what have we to do with you, Jesus, you son of God? Have you come here to torment us before what? The time. Do they understand there is a set time when they're going to meet their end? Absolutely. And they say, Jesus coming, they see him coming, like, whoa, 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 whoa. Are you coming to get, there's a calendar and we know they're fully aware Even the demons are aware of this concept. So we continue. Obviously, what's going on in this judgment? As we go back to Revelation chapter 20, as again we see what has been talked about in all the scripture leading up to the book of Revelation, Revelation just depicts what these other guys have been writing about all along, that there is a great day when the saints will judge the earth. The saints will judge the world, even the fallen angels. And again, we read in verse 4 having read all of the things that we've just read, now it makes sense. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. So, again, if they're not determining who's going to be saved and who's going to be lost, God has already cleared that up. What is it that they're doing? What is it that they're doing? Again, back to our study guide. Obviously, these saints are not determining who should be saved and lost as Christ already divided the righteous from the wicked at his second coming. But they are reviewing the judgments made and ratifying them with their approval because it matters to God what his preachers think of him. Also, I would add this. Also, I would add this. And we're going to be developing this thought. This is just a seed for an upcoming message about hell. Okay? Okay? But if God, who has of course never sinned, and angels who themselves are unfallen, were to determine the punishment due every person on planet earth, an objection could be raised to say, wait a minute, that's not fair. You don't have any sympathy with them. You've never been where they've been. You've never done what they've done. You've never been under the weight of... You don't know what it's like to have fallen... How can you be fair in your punishing of the wicked? But notice what Christ does here. He says, just to be fair, we're going to take those who have sinned but have been redeemed, pull up a chair, you look over the books. You look at who's been saved in life. You look at the records. You tell me what is the right thing to do. Obviously, they're not the one determining it, and, they, and they, God certainly doesn't need their permission, right, to do what he's going to do, but he does desire their consent and their understanding because it matters to God what his creatures think of him. You remember, it goes all the way back to the beginning of this great conflict. When Satan was cast out of heaven, it wasn't because God needed to see more evidence that he should die. It's because the unfallen beings, they couldn't see what was in his heart. They needed to see all the evidence for themselves so that when Christ executed Satan, they could say, yeah, we're with you. Because otherwise, the rebellion would continue. He could be seen as a martyr to the cause of freedom instead of the executed criminal that it really was. So he wants his creatures to see even for themselves the righteousness of his judgments. And he says, I want you to play a role in this. Who's going to be lost and saved? That's already been addressed. But I want you to ratify. I want your consent. And I want you to tell me, what should I do now? In their destruction, you help me determine what's fair. This thousand-year period of time basically serves as the jury trial of the wicked. I believe the book of Psalms, Psalm 149, depicts this bittersweet time. I admit it will be a blessing when Jesus comes. I praise the Lord that we'll be taken to be with him forever and we're going to be changed like we talked about the other night, new bodies, glory, that'd be wonderful. But don't think that the great controversy is closed just when Jesus comes again. There's still a work to do. Look at Psalm 149. And tell me this doesn't sound like the experience of the redeemed during this thousand-year period of time. Psalm 149, starting with verse 1. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song and his praise in the assembly of saints. Let Israel rejoice in their maker. Let the children of Zion be joyful in their king. Let them praise his name with the dance. Let them sing praises to him with the timbrel and harp. For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He will beautify the humble with what? We're clearly talking about the saved here, the redeemed of the Lord rejoicing in his salvation. It continues. Verse 5. Let the saints be joyful in glory. Let them sing aloud on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand. Well, what is that for? To execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples. And notice the language now, verse 8. To bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the written judgment. This honor have all his saints. Praise the Lord. Notice they're not the ones writing the judgment, are they? But they are the ones who help determine the execution of that. So that in the end, no one could say, well, they didn't have any representation. They were all dead. No one who was like them was even at the table when this decision was made. No, 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 no. These people have been just where those wicked have been, but they have opted out through the blood of Jesus. And now that same Jesus says, just to be fair, I want you to look over the books. I want you to see. I want your understanding to be involved in this final step. I don't know if oftentimes we think about the fairness of God as deeply as we should. But God is immortally, monumentally, eternally fair. He is just and he is right. And when it's all said and done, every single person will agree to that point. Watch this now. Back to Revelation chapter 20. We have to come to that end of the thousand years when the wicked are brought to life, and Satan is released from his prison. As we close now, Revelation chapter 20 and verse 7. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. And again, the nations are up to be deceived. It says in verse 8, He will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for what purpose? To battle. Whose, and this is some of the saddest language in Scripture. Whose number is as the sand of the sea. What do they do now? Verse 9. They went upon the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. A third plug now, you have to come back and listen to our message about hell. Having said that, let's look at this particular passage. What's going on here? Here, the wicked apparently are resurrected. Satan, I'm sure using all of his deceptive power, says, you're welcome, as though he did it, right? Gathers them together to battle against that great city. They're going to take a march against the city of God. And they come and surround the camp of God, surround that great city, and fire comes down out of God and devours them. My question for you is, why in the world are these people who were destroyed at the second coming brought back a thousand years later just to be killed all over again? How on earth does that fit in the fairness of God picture that Scripture has so consistently developed? Is he just being vengeful? It's like, I'm just going to kill him twice. What purpose does this serve? Now watch this now. I want you to notice something. I think this is why verses 11 through 15 exist to answer that question. If all they do is wake up and God's like, good morning, and kill him again, surely there's more to it than that. But look at verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose faith the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God. So the dead, who are of course now resurrected, are now standing before God, and these are the wicked. Watch this now. And books were opened. We have The last phase of judgment here. And the books are open for even they to see. Even they get a chance. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. So notice that their life, their record, their decisions, their behaviors, their actions, their works, their very character now is on display right next to the character of Christ in the Lamb's Book of Life. Here's God, His law, His standard, His Son Jesus Christ, and the character of the Almighty, and here's you. And even the wicked will see for themselves that they would not fit into God's kingdom even if God were to let them in. Think about this now. We continue. Verse 13, the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his what? Works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life were cast into the lake of fire. Notice what God does here. As we go back to our bottom of our study guide, as we come to a close, the only ones who have yet to see the contrast between Christ and Satan are the wicked. In the very beginning, God saw the rebellion of Satan knew exactly where it would end, and cast him out of heaven. But he doesn't destroy them because other people needed to see too, yes? The next step at the cross, the unfallen worlds, those saints in heaven, those heavenly beings, they see the character of Christ contrasted between the character of Satan, and they cast him out of the sympathies. We want nothing to do with that guy anymore. After that, they, the brethren here on earth, overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They do not love their lives to the death, They are victorious, they recognize Satan, and they reject his play in their lives too. But there's one group who has not had a chance to see the contrast between Christ and Satan clearly, and that's the lost themselves. Friends, think about what a powerful testimony this is to the very goodness of God. That even those who could not from their grave ever utter one voice of remonstrance, one appeal, one... He says, even though I know, you would never know the difference. Just so the judgment process is unimpeachable. It cannot be questioned by anyone ever forevermore. Even you get to see. Thus, we see in Scripture the greatness of the God we serve. Look at our, our fill in the blanks here, our, 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 our final thought here under every knee shall bow. The only ones who had yet to see the contrast between Christ and Satan are the wicked. This isn't another chance at salvation. Let's be clear about that. God isn't opening the doors of probation and saying, okay, come on in. But the point is, even if he were to do so, they wouldn't want to come in. But simply their opportunity to understand why they are lost. They see the character they have developed would not be satisfied in living in God's pure kingdom. By the way, do you think that Satan wants to, be, wants to have the kingdom of God? Sure. Do you think the demons would love to go back in the streets and go... Do you think the wicked of this world would love the pleasures of paradise and the great kingdom that God has before... Sure. Even the wicked want the kingdom. The problem is they don't love the king. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. Even as Christians, sometimes I feel we put too much emphasis on the kingdom and lose sight of the whole purpose is to see the king. It only makes sense, friends... There was this question that was asked to me when I was young, and I hated it. You probably do the same things as to your kids. When mine get old enough, I'm going to do the same thing too. When they're being naughty, being disobedient, being rebellious, whatever the bad thing they're doing is, you ask, could you do what you're doing if Jesus were here with you? And you hate that question because, no, you know, <laughs> he'd ruin all my fun, Right? Friends, think about this. If God is going to be in heaven with us, Jesus Christ is going to be, the Lamb is going to be our light, we're going to live with Him forever, and we don't actually like Him Would we even want to go. The purpose of this life is to become acquainted with God through His Word and His Son, Jesus Christ, to even discover if we want the next life with Him at all. That's the whole purpose. And these people have chosen again and again and have formed a character that wouldn't even want to be there. Go to our fill-in-the-blank here. I love this statement. I didn't come up with it. A friend of mine did, but I'm going to steal it because it's good. God's going to take everyone to heaven, comma, (laughs) who would be happy there. Anybody who actually wants to be with the king is welcome to come in. God's going to take everyone to heaven. Who would be happy there? The purpose of this life is determined if we even want the next life. Isaiah chapter 45 looked forward to this final day of destruction. Isaiah chapter 45 starting with verse 22. Listen to these beautiful words of Scripture as the prophet looked to the fulfillment of all of our hopes, the destruction of Satan, and the redemption of the righteous. Isaiah 45, starting with verse 22. Notice what the Lord Himself through His prophet exclaims. Look to me and be what? Saved. All you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself myself The word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall, what? Does it say every righteous knee shall bow? Friends, even the wicked will acknowledge that just and true are your ways, O Lord God Almighty. And it's not out of love, it's not of repentance, it's not out of a second probation, but they simply by the sheer weight of evidence recognize that God's way is right, Satan's way ends in death, and they would rather simply not be than have to live with the King of glory. The word is gone out of my mouth and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord, all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Friends, we've emphasized this over and over. The book of Revelation looks forward to the second coming of Jesus. It reveals to us the character of Jesus. It tells us who he is, and the decision is now ours. Do we actually want to be with Jesus? Do we want to become like Jesus? Do we want to be fit for heaven? Do we actually want to go there if he gave us the choice? Friends, my appeal to you was very simple. Bow your knee now before you have to with the sheer weight of evidence while the Savior is still calling, while there's still time. Choose you this day whom you will serve. Let me ask you a question. Please raise your hands if today's message has been clear. Did it make sense? Oh, praise God. Beyond that, my prayer is that more than just convincing The power of God through his Holy Spirit will make this powerful truth convicting. And if you surrender to Jesus, even by God's grace, converting the wicked, even now, to be saved. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. We thank you for this marvelous plan of redemption. That is not just a plan of destruction, but you want to save the lost. And Lord, we understand we're living in these final days of earth's history just before your second coming. And right now, you're in that most holy place determining who will be in your kingdom. Lord, the choice is ours even now today. We know that someday every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But Lord, let us not be forced into that position by the weight of evidence, but right now by the soft, subtle, voice of the Holy Spirit on our heart. May we see Jesus for who he is. And may we no longer have sympathy for Satan, but help us to be yours, signed, sealed, and delivered, ready to join your kingdom. Lord, this is my prayer, and I pray that everyone here would understand the message, receive the message, accept Jesus Christ, so that when you come, not one will be missing.